Hello, folks, and welcome to the Wisconsin Northland Outdoor Podcast. You know, folks, when it comes to fishing, are the fish seem to be getting harder to catch for you? Well, that's what I keep hearing from a lot of different people, including some of the top pros out there. You know, with all the pressure we put on these fish nowadays and the equipment and all kind of sonar you can imagine, it either seems like the fish are just flat not there or they're just harder to catch. And that's one of the things I keep hearing a lot of people complain about is that the DNR needs to stock more fish because the fish aren't there. Yet a lot of the surveys show that there are good populations of fish out there. So are the fish getting smart? What's going on there? Well, I had a chance the other day to sit down and talk with our local DNR fisheries biologist, Max Walter in Hayward, and we talked to Max about why the fish seem to be getting harder to catch and what's going on there and some things that we need to be really looking at if we want to continue to see great fishing in the future. We're talking to fish biologist Max Walter from down in Hayward office of DNR. And Max, uh, good to have you on a, a podcast show here. Oh, yeah. This is exciting. Thanks for having me. You know, let's talk about something I've seen a lot on social media and I've seen people, I've seen it myself. I mean, it seems like, you know, people talk about muskies, but all fish, fish seem to be getting harder to catch for some reason sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one thing to consider is that fish are not just like, they're not a robot, right? They're not programmed just one certain way across all fish. Um, individual fish have... Sometimes it's described as personalities. Sometimes the, the term that fish biologists use is behavioral syndromes, where they will act in a way that is different than other fish act, right? So if you encounter one muskie, it's not going to act the exact same way as the right. next muskie you encounter, right? And I'm sure you've seen that, right, right, John? Otherwise, every muskie would hit the same bait when you threw it at him, right? Right. Or every muskie would be looking for the exact same habitat type, grow at the exact, you know, we know that's not true. We know there's a lot of variation in these fish. And one of the ways that we have determined that they vary is their susceptibility or how easy it is to catch them, right? Um, that's one of those personality traits is how aggressive are they? And that kind of translates to how likely are they to hit a lure when it's in front of their face? You know, you know, and, and I, when I mention the social media, I see people that sometimes they'll say, well, and they come down on the DNR. DNR not put enough muskies in there. But yet I'll go to the a study that you do on a lake and the population is good. And that tells me that the fish out there are not biting or they're not catchable fish, basically. Right. Yeah. And so there's a lot of factors involved with that. And I definitely encounter this situation all the time where I'll have somebody that emails me or calls me and says, this is terrible. There must not be any fish left in the lake. That's a bit of an exaggeration, but you hear some version of that. And then, you know, we come back and say, okay, well, you know, we did a survey and we saw these fish. This is how many we think are out there. Here's some pictures of the fish to prove you that they're there. Um, and so then it does get into those different components of catchability. And some of them might be what I just talked about with whether the fish itself is susceptible to angling. Sometimes it's the lake. You know, sometimes we see a lake that gets really dense weeds and maybe the fish are spending time in those weeds and it's just hard to come up with an effective presentation or something's changed in the lake. The fish aren't where they used to be. Tons of food. Tons of food. That's a factor too. And you could think about that as a population level. If a, if a lake has a big hatch of perch, all the walleye are focused on those perch, it's harder to catch them. On an individual level, let's say you see a muskie, you know, 
and it's sort of active, but you can't get it to bite. Well, it may already have a full stomach. It may have eaten a sucker, you know, four hours before that. And it's just not that keen to eat again because it's, you know, that's kind of where it's at. Just like if I go to, you know, Louis here in town and I eat a giant burger, I'm probably not going to go down the road and then order a pizza, right? (laughs) Right. Well, you know, and and that's a lot of interesting stuff there to talk about when it comes to fish. But, you know, there's been, you know, genetic studies even out there. I know there was a study done on bass, I believe in Southern Illinois. And uh, if I remember right, they had ponds where they were catching bass and every time they caught a bass, they actually would fin clip it and mark it. And then after a period of time, they went and drained the pond and took all the fish that had been marked and caught and moved them out of that pond and left the fish that were not caught in there. And then future generations of those fish actually who are less and less aggressive or more passive and less catchable. So is there a genetic factor in there that could be attributing to this too? It, you know. Yeah, that was a great summary. Um, and I'll preface all this by saying that I would consider this to be very much an incomplete part of fishery science because it is a challenging thing to study. We haven't done tons and tons of work on this. But we have seen some things just like what you described, where you go into a population, you start fishing. You're going to catch some fish. You're not going to catch some others. Um, and then if you look at those fish and keep track of who's who, who's getting caught, who's not getting caught, maybe even breed some of those fish together, which has been done, you see some of those characteristics translating from one generation to the next. Um, that was a big thing um, in some of the you know places I worked when I was down in Illinois for graduate school. Some of the researchers down there were working on that stuff. They were then taking the offspring of these fish and then testing them in fish tanks. So they'd take a, an offspring of an aggressive bass and put it in the fish tank with some food and see how quickly does it run around to go eat stuff. And then you'd take what they'd call the timid ones and they'd put them through the same trial and see, okay, is it going to go run around and eat stuff or is it going to kind of sit tight and, and see what's going on? So they did a lot of that work and they they found you know evidence that yeah these fish have again personalities some are timid some are more aggressive and you might think well why would nature evolve that way why would that happen why would be the benefit of being timid versus aggressive well start to think it through an aggressive fish is going to be more likely to get more food right they're out there they're actively swimming they're they're going to get more food so they may grow faster but a timid fish is the one that's probably going to be less likely to get eaten by something else because it's laying in the weeds. It's being very careful about when it's eating, things like that. So each of these different strategies, and that's really what they are. It's a strategy for getting through life, succeeds for some fish, right? And that's why both of them continue to exist in a population. So very interesting stuff. I know a lot of this was done on bass, but I mean, fish are fish kind of, you know, and I think it maybe a lot of it could filter back on the muskies. And, you know, when you think about that, if you have the more aggressive fish and you have the more timid fish or, or passive fish, uh, the ones that get, you know, say, for instance, in crappies or wallies or something, the, the faster growing ones, and those ones maybe get harvested and they're out of the gene pool. But now when it comes to muskies, go, wait a minute, I mean, we have catch and release. But what a lot of people don't realize is that it, not 100% of these fish survive catch and release. It may be 10% or even higher in some, especially in the summertime. Right. And so that gets into the next interesting thing about this, which is, so these fish, you know, in Wisconsin, have evolved, adapted in our lakes and rivers for about 10,000 years since the glaciers receded. Obviously, they existed before that, but let's just call it 10,000 years. 
Well, humans have been in the picture harvesting fish in the way we harvest fish now for, we could just say roughly the last hundred years. So 1% of their, you know, time. So we're this very new and different selective pressure on these fish, right? Uh, we are not acting like a traditional predator, whether that's a heron or an osprey or a bigger fish. Um, you know, we're going out there, we're trying to catch the biggest stuff. We're harvesting all sorts of fish that probably wouldn't get harvested before because they're full-size adults. Um and then we're doing other stuff like catch and release, which you just gave another good summary of has some impacts on fish, even though we're trying not to. Um, and I don't think we've fully had time to figure out, well, what are all the impacts of these human behaviors on our fish populations? Are we making fish harder to catch? Are we affecting the size of populations? Are we affecting their aggressiveness? Um, these are all really interesting questions. And I think the only reason there hasn't been more work done on them is they're difficult questions to answer. That's hard research yeah. to do, especially in the wild. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of talk in the past has been they fish are conditioned, and there might be something to that, too. They might be learning to avoid boats and anglers and things like this new live sonar, live scope of live sonar beams, uh, which I know they're starting to learn to evade that. I've seen it. But... Uh, you know, with all the technology and the education we have on fishing today, I mean, these fish are learning pretty fast out there. Well, they have to, right? I mean, it's the ultimate consequence for any of these fish that don't learn, right? The ones that don't learn are dead. They're gone for a lot of species. So, there's a very strong pressure on fish learning or, you know, on us selecting for the fish that are going to have characteristics that make them harder to catch, right? And it makes sense. So, the other thing you consider is, you know, everybody loves going fishing in some remote lake, right? Whether that's far north in Canada or somewhere out in the middle of the National Forest, if you or a private pond, if you get that opportunity to fish somewhere where nobody else is fishing, it's exciting, right? Yep. You know you're probably going to catch some fish, maybe a lot of fish. It's not always because there are lots and lots more fish there, it may be because in some of those circumstances, they don't have the same history of being fished for, right? Yep. So, they're going to smash the first lure that hits the water. You've seen that. I'm sure you've experienced yep. that in your life going somewhere, right? You betcha. I have. You know, and, and the other thing, too, is looking at where you are dealing with places that have a lot of pressure, sometimes changing something, doing something uh, different. I can cite one exa example myself back in the mid-80s. Uh, I mean, I was on uh, one lake here in the Hayward area that the DNR thought there was very few muskies in, and I was seeing all these big muskies. I couldn't make them bite, and I was over to Camp Fish over in, in Fisherman when Linders had that, and I was sitting having coffee one night with Al, and we were talking about it, and I said, what would you do? Because they actually started their careers fishing in the Hayward area. And I said, what would you do? And he just smiled and looked at me. He says, fish nights. Oh, yeah, really? I went back home. I started fishing after dark, and the story is over. I, we caught a whole pile of big fish. And sometimes it's making that change mm -hmm. that that the fish are not really game plan for them. They don't know what's going on quite. Oh, I think that's a great that's a great way to illustrate this. Yeah, I mean, you have to show them something different, and that's why you know you'll often see a little bit of a boom when a new lure type comes on the market or a new piece of technology that allows you to find fish in places you weren't finding them before. All of a sudden, you know, you have the advantage over these fish. You have something they haven't seen before or you're doing something that they're not expecting and it works, whether that's fishing at night or, you know, when the bulldog was invented and everybody was catching muskies on those because they'd never seen it before yeah. or the cowgirl or whatever. Um, 
And I think that's, that's a lesson for anglers is, you know, it's almost like an arms race. You have to constantly be adapting, trying new stuff. The things that worked 20 years ago may not work as well today. Because <laughs> the fish are. Yes, yep. absolutely. Every generation of fish is different than the ones before it and has learned, I'm putting that in air quotes here for the people listening, has learned from what's happened to past generations. So... It, it, it's it's that's probably what makes fishing interesting, right, John? I mean, if we went out and had the exact same experience and caught every fish every time we were on the water, we wouldn't like it as much, I don't think. Well, I remember on one lake, I, one particular lure, I taught more young kids to catch muskies on it. If you threw it in the water and you jerked it, you were going to catch a muskie. And over the years, it quit working. And now fish 30 years later that weren't even hatched back then won't bite on that same lure. So that's amazing how that happens. It, it is. And, and it kind of helps put into context, you know, you look at, especially in the Hayward area, right? We've got all these stories, all this, all this lore pictures up on all the resorts and bars of these people catching huge muskies with virtually no technology compared to what we have today. Oh. I mean, think about the reels they were using, the boats they were using, everything. And the lures were so simplistic. Do do we really think that you could go out today with the technology they were using at that time and have anywhere close to the same amount of success? Not even close. Not even close. Even on a lake, even on our best musky lakes that we know the fish are there, they're going to look at that, whatever it is, you know, a Johnson silver minnow or some really basic spoon and they're going to say, yeah, well, we learned not to eat that 70 years ago <laughs> or whatever. So that's that. But I think that helps, you know, think about how people were catching some of these really incredible fish so long ago with such limited technology as the fish it was new then yeah. right well you talk the technology thing and the, the latest thing has been forward-facing sonar live sonar and there's been a big stink on the internet there are people saying oh, all this stuff it's unsportsman it's unfair it's a tool and i think it can be abused like any other tool but i think when it comes to all the technology we have available to us today it becomes even more and more and more important that anglers need to stop and back up and think, well, how many fish do we need to harvest? Or what what could we do, you know, as far as catch and release on muskies to, to ensure that they're going to survive? If we're going to catch more muskies, let's make sure more of them survive when we're releasing them. And, you know, it comes down to the angler. The angler's going to have to take a lot more responsibility, I think. I, I think that's well said. I, I, I don't know if, you know... I don't know exactly how I can build on that thought because I think you encapsulated it pretty well. Um, I guess I'll say, you know, from from my angle as a biologist, you know, I am hearing a lot from a lot of people about this. They're sending me videos and links and saying, hey, you know, are you thinking about this? Are you guys doing anything about this? It's definitely on our radar and we've started to do some research on, you know, the effects of technology, whether that's increasing the efficiency of anglers, things like that. The challenge for us as an agency is we regulate harvest. Yep. Right. Yep. We have never, with a few exceptions, we typically don't get in there and start to draw a line on this piece of t technology's inbounds and this piece of technology's out of bounds. Because where do you draw that line? Yeah, very, very hard, hard thing for law do. enforcement if you did do something. Exactly. And then the other part is how do you enforce those rules if you make them? It is a lot more straightforward for us to set rules about, okay, these are the types of fish, the numbers of fish, the sizes of fish that can leave the lake to have a sustainable population, right? And so that's that's a big part of our job is figuring out what those are going to be, setting them, learning, adapting, whatever. Um, if angling efficiency is changing significantly, 
some of those rules may have to change in response. You bet. But we've already started to see that happen, yeah. right? I mean, the, the trend for panfish, for example, has been lower bag limits. And that's already been happening over the last 20 years, even before some of these current technologies are in the conversation. Um, and I don't see that trend reversing for the no. most part. No, and anglers out there actually need to learn to accept that. I mean, the days of going out... And with crappies, for instance, of, of, of catching 100, 150 crappies and harvesting them, that's something I don't think we should be doing. I mean, it's literally, we need to think about, like I said earlier, how many fish we actually really need to keep. And I think, you know, learn to accept the, the fact, don't complain, ah, they just knocked that limit down. Why am I going to go there fish? Because there's no, you know, you can't keep any fish. We got out there fishing. You know, to me, fishing is an experience of trying to figure it out, try to solve the solution as to what the problem is as far as catching fish. Why can't I catch them? What are they doing? It, and, and then ultimately catching the fish. And, and then whether I keep the fish or not, it's, it's more of the sport of going out there than it is actually the fish. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the other challenge with, with all this is there's such wide-ranging attitudes about fishing i mean some people now are just purely catch and release whether that's for bass or musky or whatever so the regulations don't really affect them but we are still counting on them to have good practices in handling those fish so that they all go back and can be caught again which is what they want to um but then when you have people that do harvest whether they harvest all the time or some of the time or rarely there's this huge range you know some people are very happy and very lucky if they catch three crappies and they're going to take those home and they're just going to be thrilled, right? Right. That's great. We love that. Then there's some people that I would probably be more on your end of the spectrum where they could go out and catch their limited crappies most days, right? If they put in the effort, they know what they're doing, they have the experience and the skill and the tools and everything. So it's challenging to regulate a fishery when we're talking about that wide spectrum of people too. And when you might have, let's say, 50% of the population – they never harvest more than two or three or four panfish anyway. Well, you can't really set a limit that's low enough. You have lots and lots of people harvesting a small number of fish, but that adds up. Most of our regulations are going to affect those people that are at the top end, that are the the 5% or the 2% that actually harvest limits consistently, they're the ones that are going to start having to throw back more fish. But there isn't really another way around it. You know, no. we can't go to that with that 50% that harvests fish infrequently and say, well, we actually need you to harvest even less. It's a challenge, if you understand what I'm saying. I do. And I, and I think that it, it doesn't take that many people, especially with, say, walleyes, where you have a lower density population. It maybe not take – correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it takes all that many people that, that are basically what I call fish hogs and keep every fish and every fish and go out there three times a day and limit out. It doesn't take that many of those to do some irreparable harm out there on some smaller lakes. Sure, yeah. And so you used the panfish example earlier. You know, you said, yeah, you know, back in the day when the limit was 50, this, this would be in the 90s, um, a group of three people could go and harvest 150 crappies, yep. right? Seen it done. Yeah. Lots of times. Yeah. And then so li looping that back to the technology stuff, you know, if we still had those limits and let's say, you know, before the technology, maybe 2% of people were able to do that consistently. Well, if that number goes up even to 4%, that's a whole lot more fish leaving the lake, right? If you have 4% of people harvesting 150 a day compared to 2%, you're doubling a already pretty big number. Um, so that's something, you know, we're looking at too is, is kind of that efficiency component. Um, this is why we do creel surveys. And the data we get from those is so valuable because this is how we actually get a measure of 
How many people are out there? How many hours are they fishing? How many fish do we think they're harvesting? What sizes do they want to take? And then we can look at that and that that really informs our regulations. Other than, you know, and I'm not saying what you're doing is speculating because you know anglers, you talk to a lot of anglers. But it is easy to kind of look when you're out there on the water, you're looking around and thinking, oh boy, if all these people are taking their limit, that's a problem. Our creel surveys allow us to actually go look in those live wells and say, okay, here's what's really going on. These people have six crappies. These people have two crappies. These people fished all day, didn't catch anything. And you'd be amazed at how often that happens. (laughs) Well, you know, but also when you're looking at creel surveys, you look at something like the Chippewa Flowage, the numbers with the end of the year on the creel survey, even though they don't account for... I don't know, a third, maybe a half, I don't know, two thirds, whatever, that they don't get all the fish. But the numbers are are actually astounding the high number of fish that get harvested. Yes. And so what we so just to explain how that works on a big water body like the chip, you're right. We do not talk to every angler because that's tens of thousands of people. What we do is we talk to as many anglers as we can, and then we go out on the water and we conduct counts of the number of boats that are fishing. And that gives us some idea of okay, how many total hours of fishing are happening um, and then we look at our interviews and say okay with of the people fishing this is what they're keeping and we have to do some extrapolating so those are estimates those are oh, not okay yeah those are not what, what we consider to be a census where we've counted every single fish leaving because that's that's very very challenging so it is an estimate it's an extrapolation um but yeah it's amazing i mean hundreds of thousands of panfish from a water body like the chip of flowage interesting man i'll tell you max uh, this whole shows here is going pretty fast this podcast uh, a lot of information we could go on for hours, I think, talking about some of this stuff, but I really appreciate you taking the time. A lot of great stuff here. Yeah, well, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is fun stuff to talk about, and I hope it gets people thinking a little bit about kind of their role in this fishery and why we fish, why we harvest, um, and kind of how we may have to do that ethically if we want this all to continue right you bet well thanks again max yeah thanks for having me wow folks lots of cool information there and you know it really gives us some things to think about we want to see our fisheries maintained as long as we possibly can forever we've got kids and grandkids coming up and you know i want to thank max greatly for coming on here we want to get him on again Uh, quite a few times i get him on the radio show a lot and then we're adding this extra podcast If you like what we're doing here, folks, and you listen to the radio show or the podcast, you can subscribe to it. And also, we kind of put it up on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and it's also up on Twitter. It's also up on Spotify. So lots of different places you can find it. And again, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed what we did here. And we'll be back again with a weekly show every week and a few more podcasts here during this winter. And lastly, please support some of the fine sponsors that help bring this show to you every week. Without them, we couldn't do what we do. I fished, therefore I am. Ever since I was a little bitty boy, I had my granddaddy to thank. Where'd he take me fishing and we go pipe bait I'd be looking in the minnow tank Staring at those baits on the sports shop walls Well, they always fascinated me And I knew right then from an early age Just what it was I wanted to be Well, I carried my worms in a coffee can I had a bobber and a fishing pole Then I'd hop on my bike and I'd meet my friends down at the old fishing hole Where we fished all day, pass the time away, don't you know we had a lot of fun? 
were bluegill, crappie, punk, and seed perch, and fishing son of a guns. Chasing anything with fins that I can catch on a hook and line. Trading in my bike on a four wheel drive. Got a boat on the back of my truck. And I still go out every chance I get just to wet a line and try my luck. Well, a bite on my line will make me feel fine in the summer when the fishing's slow. Sitting in my shack over three feet of ice when the temperature's 20 below. Well, I fish them all in the spring and fall through the winter and the summer sun. Cause I'm a walleye, musky, northern pike trout, bass fishing son of a gun. Just like those good old boys fishing on TV where they're catching all the big ones, son. I'm a walleye, musky, northern pike trout, bass fishing son of a gun. And I'd like to thank Joe Weiss over at Spooner for the great outdoor music we use from some of his albums. And if you'd like more information on his albums, you can get a hold of Joe at 715-520-0517.